Welcome to this episode of What's Next Reload, where I have the pleasure of trying to get you to listen one more time to Seth Godin. One of my favorite humans always brings such incredible advice about how to live a more authentic life, being a better marketer, being a better employee, being a better human. There's no shortage of nuggets in any interview I ever do with Seth, but this one is one for the books. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is such a pleasure. such an honor. And for our listeners who don't know my, you know, sort of long-term love affair with Seth, it was back in 2000, I think, or 2001, when I first read Purple Cow. Changed my life. Like, all I wanted to talk about was the cow. What's the cow? I got everybody purple cows. I invited him in. And uh, I I still think if you've never read that book and you're a marketer, um, you need to go get it today for sure. Uh, so I'm going to start this off. I try to do things uh, a little fun and light as we begin. And I do something called bullish and bearish. And so I'm going to ask you three questions, Seth, and just right off the cuff, sort of what you think and bullish being you're kind of for it and bearish against it, if you will. And, and of course, there are some gray lines. Everyone wants to go in between sometimes. But the first one I'm going to do is CMOs. So chief marketing officers being replaced by chief customer officers as a title. Bullish or bearish? Oh, or it sounds like, waste, sounds like a waste of time to me. So I guess I'll say bearish. Okay, good. The next one is uh, AI and machine learning. So artificial uh, intelligence and machine learning, writing marketing content. Oh, that's already happening. So I'm not, I don't want it to happen, but it's bullish. Okay. And the next one and the last one is virtual reality and augmented reality as a conduit now for new brand experiences. Uh, It's got high beta, but in the short run, I think it's got some zing to it. In the long run, it will ultimately disappoint. All righty. Well, that's good. This is always a way to just sort of off the cuff, get some, you know, high level, quick answers on some things that are going on in the market. But I, you know, I want to dig right in because I just love our conversations. And I know you are an absolute fan about doing the right thing in business. And you and I have talked endlessly about it. And it's one of my favorite things about you because I think you always stay true to that. And you know, many people, Simon Sinek and others, just love that about you. And so do I. And so I, I'd say, you know, talk to me about how marketers are having to face shifting from worrying about what's coming next to ensuring that they do what's right today. The challenge of chasing the next big thing is it's a little like a dog chasing a squirrel. Dogs almost never catch squirrels unless the squirrels happen to be running past a dog that's sitting there anyway. And by the time you catch it, it's too late. The The big win for doing the next big thing in marketing tends to come to the people who are really early, or to the people who get it totally right. But the in-between people, the chasing people, they're just always chasing the next thing and not actually delivering real value. So for me, what the right thing means is this. If someone didn't care about your stock options and they didn't care about your career, would they still care about what you're making? And in most cases that I can think of, the answer is no, because most marketers are selfish. They're short-term thinkers and they're selfish. But great marketers are the opposite. Great marketers do service. They say, how do I serve this group of people? How do I educate them? How do I open a door for them? 
And if you take that position and you consistently do it, well, then the techniques will present themselves. Uh, it, just a quick little example. Uh, in 2002, I wrote a book called Unleashing the Idea Virus. It might have been 2000. Unleashing the Idea Virus was about how ideas spread. And I decided I wanted to give the book away for free as well as have it traditionally published. But my publisher refused to publish the book because my publisher said that his job was to cut down trees, make books, sell them to bookstores, and have bookstores buy those books. And if I gave it away for free, he wouldn't sell any copies. I believed that my job wasn't to cut down trees. My job was to spread ideas. And if I could just spread ideas, the books would take care of themselves. So I ended up not publishing it with him. I published it myself. And the end result is that the book I gave away made more money than the book I had sold previously, Permission Marketing. That the book I gave away went to number five on the Amazon bestseller list, number four in Japan. It spread around the world. It got read by three million people in digital. And that's because I wanted it to spread. So when we look at the world that way, we come to understand that our job as a marketer is not to sell what the factory makes, but to serve the people the company seeks to serve. And I understand it. And I think everybody who hears you say this on this podcast will understand it. I think the tension comes, and, and I'd love your thought on this. The tension comes where, you know, in that example, that marketer's job is to sell books and yours was to spread the ideas. And so those two things are going to be a conflict with each other, naturally. And yeah, I'm going to disagree with you. Let's right. Everyone who thinks book publishing is in a good place compared to 15 years ago, raise your hand. Oh, no one's raising their hand. I wonder why that happened. That's because the book publishing people misunderstood their role in the universe. That if Random House had been smart, they would have started Google. And if Simon & Schuster had been smart, they would have started Facebook. There's no reason they couldn't have except for the fact that they just define their business incorrectly. And so when the world changes, and this entire show is predicated on the fact that the world changes, people who define what they do in service change immediately. And people who are insisting that they have to please some external status quo get stuck. And they want a guarantee about what's going to work next. There are no guarantees. That's why they're stuck. And so as a, as a, individual contributor in a company where you get it and you're able to make that shift, but the company is not yet there. I, I, I almost know what your answer is going to be, but let's, let's, let's play that out, right? Pick another industry, any industry, right? Sure. You're, you're selling, you know, cars, you're selling real estate, doesn't matter, right? And you get it that you're sort of doing this for this greater purpose and um, you're trying to do what's best and what's right. But you work somewhere, right, where they're holding you to the, here's the metric, here's what you have to do, you know, you need to do this every day, this is how we measure your worth. And you're on the other side saying, I get all that, but I'm trying to do these things that are really great. How, how do you reconcile that? Well, let me pick one that's a little closer to your world than mine. And it's the story of Thornton May, who worked at Cambridge Technology Partners in the 80s and 90s. And he was in charge of growing the business. So it was pretty clear. No, they didn't say, here's your nine-person call sheet and here's your daily quota. But they did say, it's really clear, we need to double our sales. Well, what Thornton did was not make sales calls. Instead, he organized breakfasts connecting 
five or ten chief technology officers or CIOs for breakfast. Now, if you were a CIO at a Fortune 500 company in Houston, you were pretty lonely because you couldn't tell your employees your problems. You couldn't tell your boss your problems. You didn't really have any peers. But when you were invited to a breakfast with Thornton and there were seven other CIOs there, that two hours went by like lightning because you could learn from these other people because that was Thornton's job in his mind was to connect these people. And inevitably, during the breakfasts, one person or another would turn to Thornton and say, hey, can your guys help me with this problem? And he would leave every one of those breakfasts with a book of orders. So that was about defining what he did properly, and it also created output for the place where he worked. Now, that's not always going to be true. When I was at Yahoo, uh, I was in the sales group. That was a mistake. And um, (laughs) it wasn't my mistake. It was their mistake. But there were (laughs) hundreds of salespeople at Yahoo. And their daily life was very clearly prescribed for them. And day after day, they made a lot of money in stock options until one day Yahoo fell off a cliff. And I would argue that all of those people would have been better served if they had realized they were wasting their talent and their time and left before the whole thing fell apart. But they didn't leave because they didn't take responsibility for how they were spending their day. So you, you've just said a couple of things that I couldn't agree more on, and I just want to call them out a little bit, because the example you gave about the breakfast is the output potentially was the same, right? I'm generating business for, uh, or leads, you know, and opportunities for the business, but I'm doing it in a way where I'm being more authentic, more connected to those customers, whether you're a seller or a marketer or an IT, doesn't matter, as a human being to a human being. And so I'm a firm believer in saying that the only thing a salesperson, well, really anybody, but I'm going to pick on sales for a second since since we're on that topic, uh, can control every day is their behavior in front of a customer because a lot of it is out of their control. And so with that said, you could back into what you've just been saying and saying, look, innovation doesn't have to happen at the company level. Like, How do you just innovate in your own personal way in which you approach a customer or you write a marketing you know, uh, uh, prospectus or a campaign or the way that you approach getting people together and networking them together as the value you bring and, and you let that goodness sort of pay itself forward so that when the next time they need something, they think of you because you've put them front and center over the years kind of a thing. And so almost having to disrupt yourself individually regardless of kind of what the company is doing around you. Fair? Brilliant. Yes. And that's why the marketing fad is so dangerous. So, you know, we saw two or three years ago, everyone jumped on the content marketing bandwagon. Uh, Let's tweet this. Let's write an article about this. Let's do this. Let's do this. But the only people who succeeded were people who were doing it for the right reason. The people who did it, but were clearly being selfish about it, no one read their stuff. And at the heart of permission marketing is that my attention is valuable and I'm not going to trade it to a selfish person. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if it's, I mean, I get the point of saying selfish or it, or it may just be stuck, right? I'm, I'm stuck in this conundrum between what I'd really like to do, right? And do the right thing and be much more authentic and all those, which I think is a well overused term as well. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm trapped where I work here and, you know, I, I'm feeling like, uh, I'm just not doing good work. Um, 
And so as somebody who is in that situation, who may be stuck writing content marketing that's not that great, or, you know, another fad sort of things like account-based marketing or, you know, inbound and outbound drive, you know, all that kind of uh, sort of fads that come in and out, how do they step through that? If they, do they go to their manager and say, hey, listen, I, I sort of think we should be doing it a different way. Do they change jobs? What's the, what's the best way out of that situation? Another great point. Let me uh, put it a little aside and, and then I'll try to answer it. You know, if you go to a doctor and she can't help you because she's the wrong specialty, she'll probably tell you, oh, you don't need knee surgery. You need a back massage, right? If you go to the bookstore and look on the back of most business books, other business book authors, ostensibly the competition, are recommending each other's products. So there's two examples of people in commercial worlds who are saying to the world out at large, yeah, I'm happy to tell you what's best for you as opposed to insist on what's best for me. Now, if I think about most organizations, most marketing groups, they never do that. They're always saying, oh, we got everything everybody needs. Come to us first. And it's easy to demonstrate that that's a silly strategy. So with that said, what do you do if your boss doesn't get the joke? Well, it begins with this. Most organizations are built around, can I get authority? Can I get a badge? Can I get the right to do what I want? Because what comes with authority is if you're wrong, it's not your fault, it's the company's fault. On the other hand, it's easy, really easy, in most organizations to take responsibility. The responsibility is there for the taking. If it goes wrong, you take the blame, thank you very much. If it goes right, you give me the credit, thank you very much. So what I encourage people to do at work is to go to their boss and say, I did this experiment, it worked, why don't you tell everybody? Or to go to their boss and say, I did this experiment, it didn't work, I'm sorry, here's what I learned. That when we take responsibility and give away credit, there's usually a line out the door of people who want us to do it again. And if they don't want you to do it again where you currently work, I think you'll find that your company's competitors want you to do it again for them. Yeah, and I, I heard this st saying the other night that you know there it isn't really that you win or lose, it's that you either win or learn. I thought that was a great way of framing what you just said, right? That yeah. if you position a, a loss, right, or a failure as a learning opportunity and you have a boss or a company that supports that kind of behavior, you're going to do very well. Yeah, exactly. And even if you don't do very well where you are, who are you becoming? You're becoming the kind of person you're proud of. And over time, that mindset of service and education and learning and generosity will leave trails and it will lead you to become the person you are. Will you become a multimillionaire middle manager at a high-flying public company? I have no idea. That's not what I talk about. What I talk about is, can you become somebody you're glad you became? Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking with you and, you know, you know, as I started this podcast out, this is a perfect example, right? It's like, I think you thread along the way and, you know, me continuing to have this opportunity to spend time with you over the last almost two decades is because of that, you know, you're constantly looking to learn and you're trying to pay forward what may or may not come back, but that's not why you're doing it. Exactly. It makes it a lot easier to get through your day.
It does. And, and, you know, you're, you're also really bullish on, uh, I, I make this comment often on many companies are actually leading with experience being the product and not the product being the product. And I know you've got some great stories uh, with companies that, you know, are run by friends of yours and that you've worked with. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, the other day, one of them is Shake Shack, and I'm going to ask you that question. But I was in New York, and I was standing on the corner, and uh, I know you don't tweet. <laughs> but I tweeted to you, and I said, Seth, I'm on the corner in New York across from Shake Shack thinking of you. Uh, you didn't tweet back. I wasn't surprised. But, you know, at the at the end of the day, you're you're really bullish on companies that lead with this experience. And I'm, I'm going to guess if I play back what we've just been talking about, a lot of that has to do with if you are a company that ha- it supports your employees in that kind of win and learn and fail. And, and we want you to be better, whether you're better here or somewhere else, that's always what we want. But more importantly, we want to make sure if we have very happy employees, the result from that is that we have very happy customers. And that experience is above and beyond what others in maybe our competitive category have. Yes. I'm so, I'm so glad you brought this up. So last night I had dinner at Union Square Cafe, which is owned by Danny Meyer, who started Shake Shack. Uh, at the Union Square Cafe, they had a move after 20 years. The new restaurant looks exactly like the old one, except a little different, because the regulars wouldn't have it any other way. At that restaurant, they have named the loaf of bread they put on the table. Uh, I'm thrilled that they named it after a blog post I wrote seven years ago. And the name of the loaf is Sprezzatora. And Sprezzatora is the Italian word for doing important work, but making it seem effortless. It's the word for flair and generosity all rolled into one. And that's the motto of Danny Meyer and what he's building. Because let's face it, every restaurant in New York has a access to all the same ingredients and has access to all the same staff. So how could you possibly come out ahead? Well, the answer is focus on something other than can I sell this halibut for a dollar less or a dollar more? Focus on something else other than what's the latest food trend? So the magic of Shake Shack is not that he invented the hamburger because he didn't. Not that he invented the fast food restaurant because he didn't. What Danny did was he brought to life his version of a fast food restaurant. And as a result, he has a billion dollar company now. And that just proves what I was just saying, right? That the experience is the product. I mean, he's got a good product. No, no, that's, that's not the point. But if you have a good product and you have a great experience, it's such a winning combination where I think historically companies have really oriented around the product has to be perfect and that has to be, especially if it's an engineering business, right, where they're they're engineering led, so the pride is in the product. Or a car manufacturer, the pride is in the product. And now you see automobile manufacturers really tilting towards what's the experience. What is it like inside the car? You know, does it does it have Alexa? Does it connect to the phone? Does it you know have autonomous driving? It's a lot more than what it used to be. They don't talk about horsepower anymore. They talk about connectivity. They talk about the driver's experience, not how many you know potentially how many miles per gallon. Uh, so would you agree that now it's, you can have, and, and this is not a Shake Shack example, but if you, could you have good enough product and an excellent experience and win? Oh, well, first, again, you're right on point. And let's be clear, the product at Shake Shack is good enough. 
it is possible to make it better, but you can't make it better and also make it pay. It only has to be good enough. But the experience, the experience dwarfs its competition. So I want to talk really clearly about how each one of us can contribute to this. I'm looking over on my bookshelf of my copy, because I like to pay for my software, of Office for the Mac 2011. And in order to make the software work, you had to type in an 18 uh, character code with capital letters, small letters, and numbers interchanged in a way that almost guaranteed you would make a mistake. And you couldn't copy and paste it. You had to do it each time. Now, technically, you could have ensured the same amount of security by just giving me six words in a row that were easy to remember and spell. Like, Mary had a little lamb, hello, hello. But somewhere along the way, someone didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that had nothing to do with math and nothing to do with engineering and everything to do with not caring about the customer experience. And so what marketers do for a living is we tell stories. We don't run ads. We tell stories. And those stories show up in ways large and small. They show up in what kind of tissue paper you wrap the sweet potato fries in. And they show up in how hard is it to type in your serial number. Yeah, and I think that when you start talking about telling stories, right now, I, I um, had the pleasure of interviewing Nancy Duarte uh, on my podcast as well, talking about storytelling, right? And how marketers now face having to do it in shorter bursts, you know, whether it's 140 characters or a short blog. I mean, you blog almost every day, I think, if it's not every day. And it's not long, it's short, super powerful. Like, so you can tell a story richly in, in short bursts. And, and I think brands are trying to find their way using some new technologies and, and platforms and, you know, whether it's virtual reality or AI or whatever it might be to get more engaging there as it relates to experiences. But what I hear back from executives is, yeah, that's kind of the soft stuff. And I know exactly how you feel about this, which is why I'm leading you to this conversation, but you know, it's about the soft stuff. And Seth has a thought on the soft stuff. So I'm going to let you go. Well, is there anything that's soft? <laughs> it's all soft stuff. <laughs> yep. Right. And, you know, maybe if you worked in a, you know, government central controlled gulag where all they're doing is measuring with a caliper and a slide rule, you could argue there's no soft stuff. But until we get to that point, what separates one thing from another is not the last sigma of performance, it's how we feel about the performance. And feelings, I think they're even more important than molecules, and that's what each of us is capable of altering. Yeah, and I think when companies start to say, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that the greatest sales force, two words, um, that a company can have is customers advocating on their behalf. And the way to do that is to make them feel a certain way about your brand better or, you know, more inspiring or moves them to do something differently than another brand that may deliver the same kind of service. Yeah. I mean, let's go down the list. Slack, Nike, Apple. These companies have salespeople who have never contacted us because we didn't need a salesperson to buy something. You don't know about and care about Nike because someone made a sales call. You don't care and know about Lululemon because someone made a sales call. It's someone else told you. 
Someone else told you. It's built into the product and the service and their posture to tell other people. And that is something marketers need to build in from the beginning. And so if I'm an up-and-coming marketer, and I'm listening to this podcast because, you know, you've got sort of the chief marketing officers that have been doing this for decades or two. You've got sort of middle uh, marketers who are saying, I aspire one day to run marketing and maybe even be a CMO. Uh, you've got, you know, colleges pumping out MBAs that are marketing MBAs. So walk me through sort of if I was just starting out my marketing career and I was listening to this podcast and I don't have that muscle memory and DNA of the way it used to be and the way it needs to be now. And all I know is what I know, what would be the advice? Well, I started the marketing seminar, the, the, institution I went online to answer this question. And what I did was made 50 videos. And those videos help people, but what really works is all the time in between the videos when people are talking to each other, asking each other for advice, dissecting each other's projects, and acting as if, meaning if they could do anything next, what would they do, and then getting feedback. So even if you don't take the marketing seminar, I think you've got to simulate it. And the the way you simulate it is by doing marketing that too many people think that marketing is this orchestrated group activity where you have no responsibility, and after a lot of thinking, you spend a fortune, press a button, and then it works. And you and I both know that's not how it works. You do it by doing it. And I was lucky I started marketing when I was 14, and most people listening to this are not 14, but it doesn't mean it's not too late, that you can figure out how to market by engaging in helping your daughter sell Girl Scout cookies. You can figure out how to market by organizing a fundraiser for your local spiritual institution. You can figure out how to market by getting people to change the way they vote. And only by doing it, by being in the field, saying out loud, this is my story, do you get the intuition and the insight to understand how it actually works. And there are very few things you can learn from a book. You can't learn to ride a bicycle from a book. You can't learn how to walk from a book. And you actually can't learn how to market from a book either. And and I couldn't agree more. I think that one thing is an opportunity uh, for people listening that are on the sales side of the house is to trade places for a day, a week, uh, sit through marketing meeting, understand what they do every day. And then I would say the same thing back the other way. It's it's impossible to understand how well a marketer's tools are going to work in the hands of a seller until you try to do it as a seller. I don't need you to really be a seller. I need you to feel what it's like to be sitting across the table from a customer who will say, I, I really don't want to look at your PowerPoint. And you as the marketer have spent weeks building it and the customer could care less about it. Uh, That's right. And so I think that playing that simulation um, is important no matter where you are. If you need to collaborate with someone else in your organization, um, you can't just say, I know what it's like to be in accounting, or I know what it's like to be in customer service, or I know what it's like to be kicked out of an office as a seller, or I know what it's like to write a marketing campaign that's a total flop. You actually don't. So I don't need you to change jobs, but I think, you know, spending time, like you said, whether it's simulating something or even just trying it. Uh, you learn a ton. People come up to me after talks, and I'm very flattered that they like my talk, but then they say, I'd love to be able to do that. Will you tell me how? And the answer is, why don't you give 100 talks for free and then get back to me? Yeah. Because that's the only way you're going to learn how to do it. Yeah, people often ask me as well. I I call it something I call confidence muscle. 
Yep. And I actually say, you know, you have to build this confidence muscle over time. And, you know, you don't go from, uh, you know, never giving a presentation to giving a presentation in front of, you know, 15 or 20,000 people overnight, you will fail miserably. And, you know, there's been a number of times where I've been on stage before, uh, uh, or after Guy Kawasaki, and he has always says to me when he sees me, "Hey Tiff, you know, don't suck." <laughs> it's like thanks. You gotta man. love Guy. You gotta love Guy. That's like, not thanks, what I say to you. No, it's not right. But and Guy's even another a fellow Hawaiian boy. So you know he he's got to remember that the Ohana is you know he's got. We went to rival high schools, and that's why I think but that's why he picks on me. I think it's because he's a hockey player, actually. Um, maybe, maybe. Most of the time, Guy is a really nice, friendly, funny guy, but. I'm sorry he said that to you because you oh, don't no. suck. He says it with a smile on his face, like, you know, and, and I get on stage and I say, okay, I have two two things to do today. One, don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> and two, have a really good time and everyone laughs, right? There you but go. one of the things that you, you know, I have I have sucked on stage. You know, we've, we have off days. I mean, it doesn't mean that I, I think there's not something to learn. So when people ask me that, I'm always like, look, it, it takes time and you have to build that muscle and it gets sore and, you know, you don't want to go to the gym and you don't want to work out. You're not seeing the results you think. And I work hard and, you know, every day I try to do something to improve what it is that I do. And I think you have to be invested in making yourself better every day. Um, and so that confidence muscle, I think, especially for those starting out in their career, they have to understand that, uh, you know, it's, it's luck is just being prepared when that opportunity shows itself, right? When someone asks you to jump on stage, you better be prepared because if you, if you're not, then you may not get asked again. Um, so I think it's really important that, uh, people try things that are a little bit out of their comfort zone. Well said. So that's the so that's the sort of, you know, I'm starting out my career. Now I've been in this for a while, right? I've I've been a marketer. I've, you know, geez, I've worked for small, I've worked for big, I've worked for big brands, I've done big campaigns, you know, I've got a long list on my resume and I think I'm pretty good at what I do. But now I've just listened to this podcast and Seth and Tiffany have said, you know, I need to just disrupt myself, get a little uncomfortable, try something new. You know, what do I do there? Well, the most tactical advice I can give you happened to me Christmas 1985. Uh, I was working at Spinnaker Software. I was 25 years old. And I realized as a brand manager that no one was going to be in the office on Christmas. So I went in and answered the customer service calls for eight hours. And I promise you that starting in the new year, I was the smartest brand manager in the room because I knew what was wrong. And I knew what we weren't communicating. And I had heard face-to-face directly from people, or at least phone-to-phone, what story wasn't resonating. And too often, the marketer believes that her job is to continue what came before and to serve the people who design and make the stuff. And I think that's second-order marketing. The important marketing is designing what gets made, figuring out how to talk to people about it, telling a story that resonates. And if you have to make up a new one and replace the old one, then go ahead. But most important, before you do that, you've got to be able to hear what people are saying and see what people are doing. Because if people aren't doing it the way you expected them to, yelling at them is not the right answer. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, with with everything we've talked about today, I think the common thread through it all is finding where your strengths are and doubling down there, right? And and 
finding those things that you're good at and then trying to find a champion, whether it's a boss, a mentor, someone who works at another company, someone you meet uh, that believes in this journey you've chosen to go down and uh, disrupting yourself and finding sort of your new path forward. Or maybe you don't wait for any of those people and you just do it anyway. Or that, which I love. And I think that, uh, you know, I think more and more people are, uh, the more connected we get, the more disconnected we get, right? Sometimes doing it and, and doing it on your own and making the commitment to, to give it a try uh, is, is the greatest way to start. Yeah, I mean, no one told me I could go answer the phones. And no one told me I could rewrite their copy. And no one told me I could meet with the engineers. And no one told me I could co-write the Perry Mason game. I did, because no one stopped me. And the kind of marketer who listens to a podcast from someone like you is in a hurry. And they're in a hurry to do great work. So if you want to be in a hurry, go be in a hurry. Well, I think it's investing in learning uh, as well. Right? You know, it's little nuggets along the way. I mean, I, I can say just in, you know, our, our time together, our small time together, I always take a nugget away. And it, it pivots something is that, that where I all my nuggets have been going. Yes, it is where all your nuggets have been going. All right, you well, know, I'm running out of nuggets. So you, you are. You are absolutely. And there's one thing for anybody who has the pleasure and honor to spend five minutes with Seth. You know, he is uh, absolutely just fantastic at seeing things in you maybe that you just don't even see in yourself. You know, I think that my journey to this podcast, it was one pivotal conversation I had with you in Boston about three years ago. And that day, that conversation changed so much for me. So, you know, my friend, I so appreciate all of your time and, and uh, you know, keep giving me those nuggets along the way. And hopefully the people that have listened to this podcast have gotten a number of things that, that they can take away and uh, makes them feel better about the journey that they're on, whether they do it on their own or they do it with a great support system either way. Uh, Seth, it has been a pleasure. Well, the privilege is mine. It truly is. I couldn't ask for a better example of what it means to level up and do this kind of work. So thank you for showing up on a podcast like this. I know it's a long, long road, but the people who listen to it will be changed and I hope they appreciate how much you're putting into it. Thank you, Seth. And as always, thank you guys for listening to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your time and we will see you again soon. Thank you guys.